Hey, Kingdom Roots listeners, thanks for joining us today. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to sit in class with Scott McKnight? Well, I've got a perfect opportunity for you. On Monday, May 14th, Northern is hosting a Taste of Northern, where we're opening the door to all of our classes, both in person and digitally on our Northern Life platform. Scott's going to be doing a lecture on his new book, Open to the Spirit, as well as other classes will be happening on Bible, theology, and urban leadership. We'd love to have you join us and just experience what it's like to sit in one of our classes. Um, Also, just for signing up and attending, you get put in the running for a chance to win a signed copy of Scott's new book, Open to the Spirit. So I'm going to include a link to this in the show notes, but we're so grateful to have you join us today. We hope to see you on Monday, May 14th for The Taste of Northern. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a talk from Scott on the Jesus Creed. Well, at any rate, I am uh, really honored to be here. I have listened to Adam's sermons and read his books for many years. So uh, when Chris Folmsby wrote me and asked if I was interested, I thought, well, it's going to be a long day at Nazarene Theological Seminary, but yes, I am very interested, so I'm glad to be with you, and we want to talk a little bit about the Jesus Creed, and uh, it's one of my uh, passions to get to talk about this part of Jesus' teachings, and I I hope you'll uh, grow from it and learn from it, but most importantly, I'm more interested that you learn to practice it. I was teaching a course of undergraduate students in uh, the early 2000s, and one of my courses was on the teachings of Jesus, and it was an 8 o'clock class with college students, which is always very exciting to wake up college students at 8 o'clock. And then when that class was over, I walked across the hallway and I taught a course on the history of Christian spirituality. And as I would uh, prepare and think about the Christian spirituality, I got to asking this question of myself, how would Jesus have understood Christian spirituality? And I know, in my opinion, the, the, the book that we were reading was a wonderful book by Richard Foster called Streams of Living Water, and it was really an engaging book. But I was always frustrated that it wasn't Jewish enough because I was teaching Jesus of Nazareth, and I'm thinking, okay, this is really good, sacramental, and this, these are good things, but I, I don't think that Jesus would describe what he thought was uh, so important in the Christian life the way these chapters are describing things. So I decided to spend the next two weeks reading through the Gospels quickly, one after another, and I read through them several times, with this question in mind, how would Jesus have understood spirituality. And I came to this conclusion early. It's, it's Jewish. And one of the Jewish principles of life was repetition. You know, they, they lived out the calendar, the way we live the church calendar. They lived out the Jewish calendar. And they lived out the recitation of what's called Shema. Hero Israel, you know this thing in Hebrew? Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad You know these? Should I speak Yiddish or something? So, hero Israel. So, I I knew that this was operative for the Jews 
and that they would pause several times during the day, in the evening, in the morning, and at midday, and they would face Jerusalem and pray and recite certain things. So what I did is I I studied the Gospels, and I began to notice um, a pattern of something that I developed and called the Jesus Creed. So a scribe comes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, in Snow White fashion, of all the sayings of Jesus, which is the, of all the commandments, which is the fairest of them all? All right? And Jesus responds to the scribe, a soper in Hebrew, he responds to the scribe, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. And I think the scribe said, Hey, knock it off. I heard this my whole life. Give me something interesting and new. So Jesus said, Don't interrupt me. I'm on a roll. I'm making that up. So he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, he adds, with all your mind and all your strength. And then he says, and the second is this. And the scribe said, I didn't ask you for two, I asked you for one. Jesus said, don't interrupt me, I'm on a roll. And he grabbed a text from your least favorite book in the Bible, and only seminary professors like this book in the Bible, Leviticus. You know, all that stuff, blood and all, you know, come on. So he, he, he quotes Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Now these two texts, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, had not been connected to any text I have ever seen that relays the Shema, hear, O Israel. I've never seen these two connected until Jesus. And then Jesus, when he's done, according to Mark, says, there is no commandment greater than these. So these become, for Jesus, the two most important commandments. I often assigned my college students, when we were doing the book of Deuteronomy and Exodus, that you had to go through every commandment and and write in the margin of your Bible Either this is a love God, L-G, or L-O, love others commandment. And just so they would practice seeing that all the commandments, according to Jesus, are either about loving God or loving others. Now, Matthew has a slightly different version of what Jesus said at the end. He said, from these two commandments, all the commandments hang, which is more Jewish than Mark's, but it's the idea that all the commandments are dependent upon these two. So I began to investigate throughout all the Gospels how often Jesus paired loving God and loving others and how often he talked about loving God or loving others or how often he manifested loving God or manifested loving others. And I was overwhelmed by the number of texts. I became convinced that this is the heart of Jesus's understanding of spirituality, to become a person who loves God and loves others. Now, this sounds so simple. This is simple as Beach Boys and the Beatles, you know, right? Love, love, love. But Jesus was growing out of a huge tradition of law and commandments, and he wanted people to understand that the two most important things that he had to say about how to live was to love God and love others. 
And these are great ideas. These are brilliant ideas until you start practicing them. It's sort of like the great line that C.S. Lewis made, forgiveness is a lovely idea, he said, until you have something to forgive. Love your neighbor as yourself is a lovely idea until your neighbor is mine, right? Until they don't mow their grass in the summer or they don't shovel the snow or they play their music too loud at night or they have teenagers that are a nuisance in the neighborhood, right? Then then it's hard. So I thought, now how am I going to practice this? This is what I made a commitment to do. I made a commitment that every morning when I got up, even though I know it was Jewish to start the day in the evening, I thought, I can, I can live like an American. In the morning, when I put my feet on the ground, I was going to say what I call the Jesus Creed, which is simply this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. I said, I'm going to, as soon as I put my feet on the ground in the morning, I'm going to say it. And I always say it in Hebrew because I feel superior because I could do that. Okay? All right. Not actually, but yeah, I do feel superior. That's the way it is. All right. And then I made a commitment that at night when I came to bed, when I took my feet off the ground, I would say this. And then I did something. I will call it spirit-prompted foolishness. I made a commitment that any time it came to mind during the day, I would say it again. And I found myself saying the Jesus Creed some 40 times a day on a routine basis. And I found that it was dangerous for my moral health because I was suddenly becoming more responsive to people in the house to people in the neighborhood, to people on the Eden's Expressway in Chicago. A lot of them are from Wisconsin. They don't know how to drive. They wear cheese heads, and they cheer for the wrong team, the Packers. Why would anybody wear a cheese head? That right there is the start of major problems. So, but that was a very big temptation for my sanctification to drive on the Eden's Expressway. But I found that people would be cutting me off, and I was, I was thinking positive thoughts about them. And I thought, whoa, this is serious. So I began to practice this, and I noticed that it really started to make an impact on my life. At the grocery store, when I was picking up, uh, when I was getting gas um, with neighbors, etc. So I began to teach this to my students. And I said to my students, this is all I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to try for one month. And I'm going to give you this challenge, too. For one month, every morning, when your feet hit the ground, some of you don't go to, some of you don't go to bed till real late, you know, get up in the afternoon. We're counting that in the morning, all right? When your feet hit the ground, say the Jesus Creed. When you take your feet off the ground at night, say the Jesus Creed. And any time it comes to mind, and I promise you, it will make you sensitive at times that you never thought of being sensitive. All right, here's a story. A student of mine in that very class was the first student I ever had who had a computer in class. He had a little laptop, and it was very small, and he could type with absolute silence. His name is Tim. And Tim comes to me after about a month of saying the Jesus Creed, 
And he said, uh, yo, Scott, yo is college speak for doctor. <laughs> and Scott is my first name because that's what my parents call me. And students think they're cool, so they call you by their first name. So he says, yo, Scott. He says, uh, he says, I started saying the Jesus Creed. And he said, something happened to me. He said, I noticed suddenly when I'm coming to school, and even though I've been doing this for two years, I noticed homeless people in the neighborhood. And I, I know they were there before, but I never noticed them. And he said, after a couple weeks, he looked at me, he says, you won't tell anybody I'm going to tell you this, will you? I said, no, I won't tell anybody. He said, I invited them all to our apartment and we served them beer. He said, we're not supposed to have alcohol on campus, but it was homeless people, so we were ministering to them. <laughs> and he said, I've, I've, um, I've made a commitment to some of these people to spend a lot of time with them. All right, now, I want to tell you more about Tim. Tim was one of the smartest students I've ever taught. When he was a junior, he, t he came to my office and he told me he was going to do a PhD and he wanted to go to Duke. When he was a senior in about... January, February, he came to me and he said, um, I have two opportunities. He said, I have, I have an opportunity to go to Duke University and study uh, with Stanley Hauerwas and do a PhD in Christian ethics. And I also have an opportunity to work in Chicago with, with the homeless. He said, what should I do? I quoted Jesus, the poor will always be with you. Go study with Stanley Hauerwas. And he kind of looked at me like, that's not a very good quotation of Jesus at this time. So, so Tim came to me at graduation as he went through the line, and he said, I'm going to work with the homeless in Chicago. So Tim uh, started working with the homeless in Chicago, and about every year he would call me and say, I'm coming to school for lunch. You pay. I want to tell you some stories. So we would have lunch together, and he would talk to me about the homeless in Chicago. Then after about five years of doing that, Tim was picked up by Jim Wallace at Sojourner's Community in Washington, D.C., and Tim King became Jim Wallace's right-hand man and helped him uh, research with his books. While Tim was a college student, somebody found out about what he was doing, but one of the things he did is he, he said that we're at, at North Park University, he said, we are going to go out, outside at night on a certain night uh, and we are going to have nothing but our clothes and coats, and we are going to practice solidarity with the homeless. Well, what happened is this spread throughout college campuses throughout the United States, and then before long, Tim uh, writes me and tells me that the G8 conference in England had invited him to come talk about college student activism with the homeless in Chicago. All right? Now, here's all that happened. He said the Jesus Creed, and he became sensitive to homeless people, and it changed his life. And Tim is now, he's always up to something new and cool, but he's now living in New Hampshire. But Tim was a great example of what happens when you start practicing this, because you don't know who is going to be on your path, like the Good Samaritan's path or the priest and the Levite's path. You don't know who's going to be there. But sensitivity, based upon practicing the Jesus Creed, makes people aware of who's on the path. Another uh, shorter story, a student of mine named Renee, vineyard student, 
um, was in my class. It was a class two years later, and she's practicing the Jesus Creed. And um, she comes to me in the fall, and she says, I want to tell you about my experience with this summer. I was a nanny. And she said, I had three kids, and I didn't like any of them. And she said, every day, just before I pulled to their house, there was a stop sign. And when I got to the stop sign, I prayed the Jesus Creed. And she says, at least by the time I got in the house, I was in pretty good shape. She said, it usually lasted about 30 minutes. And she said, I started practicing the Jesus Creed. Every time I started getting irritated with the kids in the house. And she said, over the summer, it got better. But she said, some days cars were honking at me behind because I was saying the Jesus Creed too many times and they wanted to get, get me to get going. And then she comes in, as she comes in my office telling me this story, she starts pouring tears down her face that she missed the kids that she had spent the summer with so much because she had fallen in love with them because she practiced the Jesus Creed. All right, so I'm telling you these stories because this works. This will be transformative for you to practice this Jesus creed of saying it. And this is all that I really want to accomplish with the book, is to get people to say the Jesus creed because these words of Jesus, red letters in your Bible, these words of Jesus are potent words. And if we repeat them and recite them the way Jews repeated them in the first century, the way Jesus would have taught his disciples to repeat in the first century, we will become people who are more loving toward God and toward others. You know, Jews prayed three times a day as a general rule. Daniel goes up on his house and prays toward Jerusalem three times a day, in the evening, in the morning, and the afternoon. Psalms 55, 18 tells us that the psalmist says this. This is my translation in tone. In the evening and in the morning and at daytime, in the, in the afternoon, I will pray and lament and the Lord is going to hear my voice. There's an irritation in the psalmist that he is going to go back to God until he gets God to respond to what he wants. So Jews develop this habit, and we sometimes as sort of uh, uh, free-spirited American Christians, we sort of feel like we don't have to follow rules like that. But it's the habit of recitation over time that builds character in us of reminding us of what's so important about the Jesus Creed. All right, so I'm going to ask you to repeat with me now. This will be the first time we say this together. Repeat with me the Jesus Creed. I'll say it, then you repeat after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Echad. I thought you'd like a Hebrew word in there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Okay, you have no excuses now. You can say it, all right? Now, the question is this. What is love? Oh, don't we wish we had this answer. I was teaching another course of undergraduate students, and the course was called Women, the Bible, and the Church. 32 students, 30 women. 
all already convinced that women should be ministers in the church. And the two males had no vote in the matter. They didn't have a chance. So I was working through the texts of the, of the Bible on women. You know, we start in the Old Testament. We go with Miriam and we go with Huldah, etc. And these are great texts. And we get the New Testament. We look at Mary. We look at Phoebe. We look at Priscilla. So we, we talk, and Junia, we talk about uh, the women in the... Uh, but I, I discovered that they were all convinced, uh, and it, it really had no tension in the class at all of discovery, because they had thought about this before. So I began to shift the class away. We would only do one-third of the class on, on women in the Bible, and should they be ordained. And then the rest of the class was on the relationship of males and females, and what love meant. And it was some of the most dynamic class sessions I've ever taught in my life. Well, as we were working through this, I was reading, teaching the, the whole Bible in a course, and I was reading the whole Bible through, and my goal was to define love on the basis of the Bible. And this was for me to deepen what I mean by the Jesus Creed. So I want to tell you some of my, my discoveries. The first thing I discovered is you cannot use an English dictionary to define what the Bible means by love. It won't work. The English dictionary tells us how we use English words in America. All right? Not in England, but in America, unless you got an Oxford dictionary from England. The second thing I learned is this. When you go to the Bible to look at what love means, you have to watch God love first. Because God is love. If you look at Paul, you'll see some good moments and some bad moments. Sometimes when he gets a little, when he pops his top, all right, you can watch Jesus and you will see love, but you have to watch God to understand what love is in the Bible. We don't define love in the Bible on the basis of how humans love or how Israel loves or how the church loves, but how God loves. And this is very important for us spiritually to know that God loves us in spite of the fact that sometimes we're not loved by others the way that we should be. And I've discovered that there are five elements of love in the Bible as to how God loves. And the first one is this, that love in the Bible is a rugged commitment. Now, this is my translation of the Hebrew word berit, the Greek word diatheke, that we usually translate covenant. But when you use the word covenant, it's so religious or it's so legal, it just doesn't convey all that it means in the Bible. To love someone is to make a rugged commitment to them. And as you look at God's love of Israel, Abraham, the children of Israel, as you look at God's love, the people of the church in the New Testament, you realize that God's love, like the love of God in the book of Hosea, is hardly something that is always on the best of terms. And this is how you and I love people. You know, some days marriages are just wonderful. And some days they're just wonderful. You know what I mean? Some of those days aren't just so wonderful that we grow and that, and that people we work with, some days we just love the people we work with and other days they drive us crazy. That loving people is a very complicated thing. And that love requires a rugged commitment. 
And as I looked at the the, uh, pages of the Bible, realizing that the first thing God did with Abraham when he struck up a relationship with the people was to form a covenant. Now, the covenant that God formed with Abraham is beyond weird for modern people, and so I love teaching it to my college students. This is not something I would demonstrate dramatically on a Sunday morning. But what God did is he put Abraham to sleep after Abraham had cut a few animals in half. All right? It's not a very pretty scene. And then, because I was teaching college students, I said that God went between the cut pieces smoking pot. And I had their attention. And I meant a smoking pot, not smoking pot. But they, they were interested now. And they thought this was a cool event between God and Abraham. Now, we look at this and we we have to say this is is a little weird. And it's not something that we want to be doing in our backyards anymore. Uh, This is not butcher shop or anything like this. This is a covenant shop. But what it means is this. Yahweh is saying to Abraham, you can do this to me if I am not true to my commitment to you. Now that is amazing. That's a beautiful picture. We would picture it dramatically in different ways. But what is being said is that God is saying, I am with you. I am in your corner. I am the one who is committed to you. Now, Israel, Abraham, his children, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the children of Israel from Moses on, they were not the picture of absolute faithfulness in this relationship. But God remains true. God remains committed to the covenant. And nothing is more visible than that, than his commitment to Jesus in raising him from the dead. The Church of the Resurrection celebrates the resurrection of Jesus as a demonstration of the faithfulness of God to his covenant. 